listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, Stomping Jen. Here we are again. We are. Recording the Soft Serve podcast. Again. Yes, I'm really excited. Do you know why? No, I need you to tell me, as always. Yeah, we're talking to Ange Roll, a beekeeping and organizational consultant. What's that? We're going to talk, well, Ange works with bees, obviously, and also people, and tries to take concepts related to um, beekeeping and apply them in some ways um, to um, organizational health and well-being. You're and going on and on. I know. You asked me, so I have to, I yeah, must I just, answer. I was just making conversation. Oh, well. All the, right, the, let's the place, get to it. The place for conversation is <laughs> after the intro music, okay? Yes. All right, let's go. All right. <laughs> Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna sing to you instead of you singing to me this time. This is a very pleasant <laughs> and welcome change of events. Please go on. No, that was it. All right. Well, no, but you're not gonna start. I will not start. I wanted to cut you off at the pass. Thank you for singing to me. Oh, you're so very welcome. It's nice to have somebody sing to me at the beginning of the show. How lovely. I don't always have to be the one singing to you. Uh So thank you. I know how much you love it. Well, without further ado, I would like to say hello to our guest, um, Ange Roll. Hello, Ange. Hey, how's it going, y'all? Good. Thank you for joining us. Um, now, Stomping Jen cut me off very abruptly when I was <laughs> describing my understanding <laughs> of what it is that you do. So um, I have to give you an opportunity kind of right out of the gate to tell us um, just a little bit about um, who you are and what you do as it relates to bees and organizational consulting. Cool. Yeah. So um my name is Ange, as you already said, and uh, I'm a beekeeper. Specifically, I, I, I do some some pretty specialized type of beekeeping called uh, queen rearing or breeding. Um, and I do that in two places. I spend about four months in the southeast, and I spend about four months in the northeast um, raising bees. And then I also, from from about a decade of that work, have built some knowledge and understanding that I use in my other work world, which is organizational change um, consulting. So I basically work with orgs who are going through some kind of transition um, or upheaval um, and help them plan and strategize their way through those. Because I don't know if you know this, but humans, we're not like so good at change. (laughs) 
I do know this, um, mm-hmm. mostly from personal experience. <laughs> Anytime I'm confronted with change, um, I don't, I yeah. don't do well. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, just, just creating the supports, um, the collaborative supports really necessary for folks to navigate their way through that, um, is part of my work as a change making consultant. Cool. Thanks for that description. Um, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about, about that. I have a, a bunch of questions for you. Um, I really, I wanted to start um, with a question and kind of an idea. I was unloading the dishwasher today and kind of thinking about bees in this conversation. And then it hit me that human beings and bees have a long standing relationship. Mm-hmm. We call those who are dear to us honey some of us do (laughs) and i began to think to myself well that's because i mean honey is delicious but it also i think shows not an appreciation for these bees and how they've integrated themselves into our into our social fabric you think that's what that's all about i do Hmm. i might be overthinking it Ange, but do you have any ideas or thoughts about the importance I mean, I think of bees. We've we've integrated ourselves into their social fabric, right? Because we're we're sort of the ones chasing after the honey. Um, yeah, I mean, our relationship with them is old, thousands, eight. Some people say five. Some people say eight thousand years that humans and honeybees have had a relationship, and um, that entire time we've been, you know, working with them to benefit from them, honey, wax, propolis. Uh, all the different things that they make inside of the the nest, right? So like we've actually epigenetically probably impacted them in um, how they've developed and thus like sort of caused them to develop side by side with us. Mm. And so these bees, I mean, you mentioned some reasons, but they are, they are, or some things we get from them, but they're they're really important um, elements of our ecosystem, right? I mean they they are they are part of the chain of um, important things in the, the the ecosystem web, I think, right? Yeah. So all these are are important for for pollination. Um, bees, bats, butterflies are all pollinators. Some types of birds. Um, they're important for pollination, uh, particularly for human consumption. Um, they pollinate a lot of our food. So most things that uh, we eat that come from trees, like apples, oranges, um, cherries, avocados, um, other tree fruits, uh, lots of different kinds of nuts are all pollinated by honeybees. And in the food system that we currently have, which is um, pretty large and national in scale and function, they actually have a really important job of pollinating crops that wouldn't get pollinated otherwise because they're not webbed into a local ecosystem. Um, but then they also operate as an important component of localized ecosystems, depending on where they are, um, that pollinates all different kinds of foods and non-food uh, hmm. nectar-producing plants. Now, honeybees, um, we've, we talked to some folks on this podcast um, before who run a farm and they were they were talking to us a little bit about the difference between 
honeybees and um, other types of bees. And honeybees are are they native to North America? Do, do we we brought them no. here, right? We brought them here, yeah. Um, when they came over in the 1600s, well, that's the that's the first like written documentation. But there's also sort of con- conflicting narratives of uh, when exactly they came here. Uh, but they're not they're not endemic or indigenous to the U.S. Uh, they are from the African continent, European continent, Asian continent specifically. And I, I, in in reading on your website, some of the work you do with um, these bees is mm-hmm. helping them be. Um, I, correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology, like hardier, or yeah. uh, is that because they're not from here and they need a little? They need a little um, evolutionary help. It's a little bit more complicated than that. They actually do really well as a as a transitional species or a species going to another um, location and continuing to propagate themselves. I don't, that's not a term, transitional species. I just made that up. <laughs> um, yeah, but they, they do really well. Typically, it's the, the issue is that about 20, 25 years ago, um, there was a pest that was predominantly on the um, on a honeybee called Apis Serena, which is um, a uh, honeybee that lives on the Asian continent. And this pest jumped from that bee to um, the European honeybee, which is uh, Apis mellifera, which we think about usually when we're thinking or talking about honeybees. Uh, And the problem with that pest is that it sort of came into fruition at the same time that we were really starting to see impacts of climate change um, and that we were really starting to see a lot of development um, around the world. And so we're losing forage or like food for bees at the same time that we were like a new pest that we knew nothing about was being introduced. Um, and we were seeing drastic changes in the climate all over, um, the world. And so those sort of three things really impacted the health of honeybees and this varroa mite really stuck around, like really for the last 25 years, we haven't been able to study or understand um, it. We'd only figured out last year, uh, Dr. Samuel Ramsey figured out that it actually feeds on their like lymphatic or like liver system. Oh my so God. it's always, it's like, it's like having an autoimmune disease is how I liken it. You know, like it's always these varroa mites are like feeding on the bees and always making them a little bit sick. Um yeah, so what we do is we we work with bees and select for bees who um, have a resistance to that varroa mite. So they either have like a behavior or a trait um, that we select for that makes them more resistant to that mite. And when we cross those bees that are more resistant, so the objective is to make a, a support a bee that's stronger um, and can survive. And we have to use less uh, treatments and chemical interventions to try to deal with this bug on a bug, essentially. Right. Right, because if we if we try to kill the mite um, with some kind of chemical or other means, it might hurt the bee, and we don't want to yeah, do that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, the challenge of that too is like a lot of the treatments that we use are meant to erode the exoskeleton, but bees also have an exoskeleton. So it's like, mm-hmm. what is the threshold of burning exoskeletons that you can uh, use? And and the mites adapt to the treatments, right? So then you're basically selecting for a, a stronger parasite and not necessarily selecting for a stronger honeybee. Um, 
damn mites. We yeah. Um, yeah. talked to cannabis growers before, and they talked about mites. Is that true? Yeah, these mites are a problem. Mm. Mites. I I, th- I think about them as like our, you know, our ticks. The bees have varroa mites and we have ticks. Mm. Kind of like that. They look similar. They have like a little, um, little you know, grindy whole face. Yeah. <laughs> like drills into the bee. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Gross. Uh, Gross stuff. Um, Ange, I was I was reading your bio on your website, and I was absolutely fascinated about your journey towards beekeeping. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wanted um, I want to ask everybody um, who's listening to this to go to go and read it. It's a it's a it's a long description about kind of where you started and how you arrived at beekeeping. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you want to give us kind of the Cliff Notes version of your path to becoming a, a beekeeper and an organizational consultant who uses some of the the concepts from beekeeping. Yeah. So I had an interesting childhood. Let's leave it there. And <laughs> when I was a young adult, I knew I wanted to go to school, couldn't afford to go to like to college, but I knew I couldn't afford to um at the time I was living in Florida, South Florida, and I, um, I started working as a bartender and, um, worked my way up to bartending in places where, you know, that, where that career was quite lucrative at the time. And, um, yeah. And to use that as a way of paying to go to school, um, but the drawback was I basically worked five nights a week from 9 PM to 4 AM and then went to school during the day and the week right so now that I think about that I'm like how like how mm-hmm. is that even possible physically mm-hmm. for my little body but it happened uh, <laughs> and um after school I like I hadn't really because of that gotten the opportunity to do um a lot of like exploration of what I wanted my career to be but I knew I wanted it to be in the exploration of sustainability um and so I met you know, there was, it's a weird crossover of people in South Florida. I met some sailors who suggested that I spend some time working on different boats and I was able to get a job on a solar powered sailboat, sail it from um, New Zealand to Fiji with a crew. Um, Unfortunately, I am terrible at ocean crossing because I get wildly seasick. Mm. (laughs) I spent most of it, uh, you know, leaning over the edge, but I saw a lot of dolphins because I was there on the deck all the time. That's a long long distance, right? Um, New Zealand to Fiji? In that size boat, it's about 10 days. In a larger boat, it it, it would be a little bit faster. Um, It was enough distance for me, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so, so I did that and it really, it was a wild experience that just opened up a lot of different possible, like my my understanding of what was possible in building a career really shifted from there. Um, and I got into, uh, grow, you know, I did a lot of cooking on that boat and that got me into growing food and particularly being at sea and not having access to fresh food. I was like, wow, I never want to do that again. (laughs) <laughs> can you grow can you grow food on the ship were people no, doing that like i do i grew a lot of herbs and stuff when we were docked but no it's too there's like literally so much salt in the air once you're actually in the ocean oh, yeah there's just no way it's possible um it's really hard to keep food fresh too like i'm sure that there's 
probably systems if you're like a large on a large yacht, but not mm-hmm. so much on a tiny sun-powered sailboat. Um, yeah. Uh, so so anyway, I I I very much flopped that trip and had to go home um, with my tail between my legs. But I had this sort of new vigor for you know designing my own career and. Um, continued to explore things like uh, urban agriculture and like the reclamation of um, urban lots for food forests. And, and in that same uh, moment was also pursuing a degree in education because I had been doing a lot of teaching uh, during college, after college, and it just felt like a thing I was going to keep going. And so I really sort of like had this dual career path where I was really interested in uh, agriculture, um, and also really fascinated by how people learn. So I guess it's always been, it's really always been the roots of, uh, how I got here. Yeah. I was doing another moment of reflecting about your sea journey and Mm. like it occurred to me living on a boat with a bunch of other people, um, is kind of like being in a hive, like a, a closed system, almost kind of, you know, and you have to cooperate and everybody is doing, yeah. you know, there's like a social, there's like a closed system and a social order there. And I was just thinking, I was thinking about that was an interesting connection to me. Yeah. That's interesting to think about. It is, it's a, uh, there's a lot of social agreements that are necessary to k- literally keep you alive, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, so one of them is sitting, um, sitting watch, you're supposed to sit watch and depending on how many people you have in the boat, that's how many people sit watch. So it could be like, you know, every two hours or every four, but essentially that means you're not sleeping full nights. Um, and it means that you got to stay up and you have to stay up to make sure there's no boats that are going to like cross your Mm -hmm. boat's path and potentially cause a collision. Um, Yeah. So it's wild. It's people, you know, I didn't really know that well or really have that much emotional investment in, but I was very invested in keeping them alive and trusted that they were doing the same for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Were there ever any like horrible accidents on the boat? Like did, did that trust no, ever I mean, get broken? I only and, yeah. did that one crossing. So I'm sure that yeah. folks who've been at sea more times have wild stories. Um, but I only did that one crossing. I do remember um, coming really close to falling asleep and then having a long conversation with the captain about like why that was dangerous and, and coming up with all these strategies for staying awake uh, while doing the the watches. Mm, that's good. Yeah. And... and wild. It sounds like the the captain of the boat was someone who was, you know, willing to have a conversation about that and like and work work with you on coming up with a solution to the problem you brought. Like in my mind, a captain of a boat is, you know, a commandeering, like no nonsense type of person who, you know, I don't know, might make you walk the plank if you fell asleep or something, <laughs> so stomping Jen. <laughs> yeah, like um, that sounds, I don't know why I'm surprised that that surprises me. They're the leader. Yes. Okay. And yeah, the, I mean, this is a good leader who's willing to. Yes. And I think that this was, you know, this was a unique boat in which they took like folks who are willing to work for entry level 
pay and teach them how to work on a boat. And so in that, in that vein, it's like a teaching farm or any kind of like, you know, skill learning environment where you really have to be able to explain why things matter. Because like for me as a kid coming out of like just working in bars, like I understood that culture as a work culture, but definitely not what was important or mattered on a, on a boat, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. What was the end goal of the trip? Was there like a specific? Oh gosh! So the 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 funniest part of this whole thing is that the the trip was to go from New Zealand to Fiji and work the um, the surf season in Fiji, which was supposed to be where we the crew made our money um, because it's it's like a lucrative thing. You take people out on tours and take mm. them to the to the breaks and cook them food and stuff like that. Um, but when we got to Fiji, there was a military coup of the government. Oh my God. God. So like the entire island was on this like quasi shutdown. Um, and we got there, like, we didn't know that before we crossed and then we got there and found it out because it was 10 days that we lost. Um, and so we were just in this holding pattern of like not really knowing should we stay or should we go? Is this going to be lucrative or like do we need to cut back on crew? Um, and ultimately, several of us ended up like going home. Um, but yeah, it was it was wild to be there and to be one of like very few foreigners that were in the country at that time. Oh, that's given interesting. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned you mentioned that you sometimes travel down um, to the south um, to do your mm-hmm. work with bees. And I've been following. Um, you know, we 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 scheduled this conversation like months ago. So I've been kind of following and tracking your progress on social media um, in the in the intervening weeks since you know we first talked about having this conversation. And um, I've been watching the videos. Um, of your work down there in Florida and they're absolutely amazing. Um, so, you know, my, my understanding was you were down there raising queen bees to bring mm-hmm. back up here. Could you talk to us a little bit more about like why you have to go down there to Florida? And then I think, do you bring the bees back? Kind of. Yeah. So we go down, we, we have a, a cycle where we are able to get two spring seasons into one year and it makes our business um, lucrative and limber enough to be an early startup. Um, so we start our year, we start our year in February. Um, we go down to Florida and we start raising bees there. So we make we divide our hives up. We raise a bunch of queens um, from our, our very best hives. And then we put all those baby queens in these small hives and we let those grow up. And we do that cycle maybe six times. That's about on a six-week cycle. And then we stop and let all of those hives get uh, large enough to travel. So they're like expanded enough that they're not just baby hives anymore. Um, and we take all of those, we take most of those hives and we pack them into a van and we travel north with them. We stop in North Carolina, um, let our bees fly for a few days and then pack them back in and come back north. 
uh, and we get up here for the beginning of May and we basically do the exact same thing we did in Florida, but in New England. And we're working with the best bees that overwintered in New England. So we're always trying to work with our best bees, whether they're wintered in Florida or wintered in New England. We're always, we always have bees in Florida and we always have bees in New England. We move like two thirds of our bees right now. And as we get bigger, that number will stay the same, but more bees will stay in each of the locations where we run this project. And what that allows us to do is it allows us to um, raise queens in the Southeast for the early season when beekeepers um, who are commercial scale or larger scale are growing and we get to sell queens to them and they sell them to their, you know, they give them to their customers um, or they use them for pollination or to run their own hives. And then when we come back up to the Northeast, we use the stock that's overwintered here in the Northeast to produce queens um, for Northeast beekeepers. And that tends to be a little bit smaller in scale. Beekeeping up here is much harder and the winter is just inherently longer. So um, we get bees in the Northeast that are from the Northeast and we're able to then support bees in this bioregion. Uh, and then in September, we evaluate all our hives that are here in New England. We pick some that are going to stay in over winter and we pick some that are going to head down south to Florida um, and we bring them down there to overwinter down there. Florida is like the only place in the country that has a really good fall nectar flow. Hmm. Um, it's called Brazilian pepper. It's it's a will be classified as an invasive species, but I think that's a pretty complicated term. Um yeah, anyway, so we, it's, we're able to catch that. Our bees get lots of food, and then they go through the winter um, in Florida, and those are the bees we use to start up again in February. Is there something special about that plant's nectar? Is it? I, I don't know anything about bees, so I apologize. Is it like full no. of extra stuff that no, helps it's them? No, it's just available at a moment when there yeah. isn't a lot of other food available. So it's a really important resource, and because Florida has an easy winter, um, we can catch that nectar flow and then let our bees go through the easy winter um, and they'll come out in the in this Florida spring nice and strong and ready to to grow up um, wait, at wait. The, that time. And when you say nectar flow, is that literally the, the nectar coming off of the plant and you somehow capture that like with a device or something? Or do you oh, just... No, I don't do anything. The bees do all that okay. work with their hibiscus <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I move the hives and, um, you know, make sure that they're healthy. And then okay. they, they do all that other work uh, on their own. Right. Another silly question. And how how do queen bees come into being? Like, are they, are they like, um, like uh, white kittens or something? They're just like, they're just randomly come with a new batch of bees or can you like actually make them can you sorry so nice and cute like kittens sorry <laughs> <laughs> like can you make can you deliberately like make them by breeding certain types of bees like i'm really curious yeah, how you get so these any any egg that is 24 to 48 any egg that has hatched that a queen lays in a hive queen bees lay eggs right so the eggs then become larvae, they become young bees who become adult bees. Um, but the queen bee is the only bee in there that 
that most often lays eggs. These things that we say about bees is like, we say them like they're facts, but bees do all kinds of stuff that we don't understand and probably won't. And I love that about them. It's like ironic that we have this 8,000 year old relationship and we think we understand them, but like we don't actually understand that much of what they're doing. (laughs) I love that mystery. Yeah, so any egg that a queen lays that is less than 48 hours old could be a new queen. Um, the thing that impacts whether an egg is a queen or uh, or like whether the larva becomes a queen or becomes a worker, becomes a drone, which is like a male bee, um, is the diet that they get after that 48 hours. So nectar and pollen are mixed together and they make this like uh, bread. It's like a fermented food that they feed to all the worker bee larvae. Hmm. And that helps them develop certain kinds of fat bodies and it helps them develop um, certain types of wings and a certain size body. The queens are fed this really specific diet of pollen and royal jelly. And that makes them develop, it triggers a developmental response in the larva that makes them develop as longer. Um, And then what happens is their ovum develops, which is where their ovaries are, um, and they are able to actually mate. Certain, now like that's just the the baseline science. Certain um, instances or events in a hive will trigger bees to raise more queens. Mm -hmm. So the first one is if they are um, swarming. So we've all heard the term swarm of bees. That's, That's basically a bee's reproductive response. When a hive gets too large um, or gets overstuffed with resources and it's like backlogged and, you know, things are getting chaotic in there, they will trigger a swarm response, which means they start raising queens and they take their old queen and they stop feeding her as much because every single day the workers are feeding her and touching her and spreading her pheromones all over the hive. But when they're in the swarm response, they're taking those resources and putting them to raising new queens. Because of that, she'll sort of stop laying eggs as much and then she'll be able to fly And when those new queens hatch out, the worker bees will literally pull that old queen out of the hive um, and they'll swarm. So basically when in a swarm, it's pretty amazing. Every single bee in a hive is flying up in the air and they're flying in like a helix shape, like DNA. Um, So if you are like, if you're looking up at them, it just looks like a bunch of helixes flying in the sky. So you've got all these bees that, the bees that can fly because the really young ones can't. Um, All the bees that can fly are up in the air. And they make a decision based on watching the bees that are at the highest point. And the bees at the highest point in the flight pattern are flying in the direction that the the queen, the bee that they dragged out of the hive is going, right? And so basically those bees watch the, those, the bees that are the directional bees. <laughs> they get a sense of where they're going and half of them leave with the, with the queen and half of them stay behind with... Um, the brood and those new queens, the the queens that are hatching out of the eggs. And then the old queen and the and the the older bees that that flew off, um, they'll collect, it's called biovacking, where they like make those balls of bees that you yeah. see. Yeah. Um so they'll collect or biovac on a on a tree or wherever they could find a space and they'll look, they'll send out scouts to look for a new home. Scouts will find a home, they'll do this dance, and whichever of the dances is uh, presented, they get presented that's like the best, the best possible place for them to call a home, that's where they'll go. 
So now old queen's gone, half the hive's gone, the swarm is gone. And what you have in its place is called a daughter hive because it's a queen that was raised from that original mama. Uh, and the daughter hive has all the babies and all the resources and it has a queen that needs to mate. So she has to still go out and like achieve her greatness and mate with um, male bees so she can come back and start laying fertilized eggs. And so that's the natural process of how you would get get queen bees and what work that we do is actually mimicking a swarm in a hive to get them to raise a lot of queens at once and then putting those in a bunch of hives that have no queen and so we're able to raise queens in a systemic way like kind of on a schedule but Mm -hmm. it's still agriculture so that is fascinating (laughs) i saw a swarm once um i went out one morning to go to work and there was a big ball of bees on our pear tree Um, I had known enough about this to leave them alone and Mm -hmm. just, and so anyone listening to this, I've learned this through watching videos. Um, If you see a a ball of bees or a swarm of bees, leave them them alone. Leave them be. Or call a beekeeper. Mind your business. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And they were gone when I got home from, when I got home from work later that day, they had, they had gone. Um, you mentioned the bees dancing, um, mm-hmm. and you mentioned pheromones, which I believe are chemicals that um, animals mm-hmm. give off to send signals to each other. Is that the main way that bees kind of talk to each other? Is through um, those yeah, two ways? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they there there's a few different ways. Pheromones, as you said, chemicals are like scents, basically that they send out. Different scents mean different things. Um, and they have different glands that produce different scents for that reason. Uh, and then there's dance, which can be like, dance is a way that they share the locations of food and resources. And it's also a way that they tell each other to like move or, or like get out of my way or like move, we're all going this way, you know, like they vibrate um, at different frequencies to communicate different Things. How is that possible? Like, I, I know that that's what they do. Like, I, can't... <laughs> I know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I watch it and I'm just like, what the hell is even happening right yeah. now? <laughs> um, yeah, it's all different vibrational frequency and they make, they make different sounds. Like, we hear them as sounds, but to them, it's about the vibration and what that particular vibration is communicating. In the same way, like, I don't we communicate through song and music and... and Body language and yeah. word and words like words yeah. are vibrations essentially. That's you true. Know, so. yeah. yeah, I mentioned I mentioned these videos that I've been watching, um, yours and other other people's, um, and you know I've had to I've had to check my um, biases about bees. I mean, for a lot of my life, I thought bees were these dangerous uh, creatures that were out to get us, right? Like just waiting for a person to sting, but. There's bees. Yeah, but like, okay. you know, Ange, in your videos and other videos, I've seen people are, you know, sitting amidst hives and bees mm-hmm. are flying around them. And pe- I've seen people pick up bees with their bare hands and move them into like a, a new hive. And mm-hmm. so um, is there is there a, I mean, I know there is. Um, what's a helpful way for us to think about these bees and their, the, the, in terms of they're not really dangerous to us as you know in everyday life yeah absolutely um 
you know, the thing, the thing about bees is it's like any, any, any creature that is different than you is like, you don't know how to act. And so you're not gonna, you're gonna act nervous or like in disequilibrium with how you usually are. Um, but if you're calm and, um, not flailing about and trying to smash them, for example, mm-hmm. um, the bees are just going to leave you alone. Like unless you are covered in nectar and, you know, standing really still trying to act like a flower, like we're not <laughs> interested in you. That's you're yeah. not, we're not part of that. You know? <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> unless we choose to be, and then that's a different thing. But I think that, um, I think that this is true of, of most wasps with the exception of yellow jackets because they're evil mm-hmm. incarnate. Um, <laughs> 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 That's a little biased, but um, yeah, I, with the exception of, of, of yellow jackets, most wasps are trying to make their nests and lay their eggs and propagate their, their young and mind their business, stay hydrated. So uh, we could take a page out of their book and do mm-hmm. those things. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other important thing is like, don't don't plant the same like like fairway you know uh golf grass on your lawn everywhere throw some clover seed in there throw some poppy seed in there let your lawn go wild you know plant more like you know bees will forage a five to seven mile range around radius around their hive and so what we plant is always a drop in the bucket, but I think about if we were all planting drops in the bucket, then we'd have a pretty full bucket. So Mm -hmm. planting Mm -hmm. forage that you think is beautiful. That's also, you know, pollinator friendly, um, planting trees, uh, basswood or, um, linden is one of the, the best forages in new England that we can possibly plant for bees and one tree, um, the equivalent that, you know, the equivalent of, of planting a tree is planting like several acres of a single flower. And so if you can plant one tree for the bees, that's going to go a long way. Um, trees and perennials that come up early in the spring, because we do have that, these weird, wet, uh, long, cold springs here, um, like apples and um, letting your dandelions go. Yep, we do that. Uh, and grow because that's a big <laughs> primary forage. Yep. I love those things. They're yep. so cute. I don't rake. I don't um, rake. Um, I stopped. <laughs> low yeah, I've let the we- I've let the weeds and the clover and take over our yard. Um, we had a we had a pollinator um, activist on a while back who convinced me this was the right thing to do, and I'm happy I did it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, yeah. And I also I yeah, only I mean I mow like. Don't- Oh, we sorry. don't mow our lawn, but that's because we're beekeepers and we don't yeah. have time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I only mow every three weeks now. Um, it you know gives you know gives nice. Yeah. So and, and it also cuts down on emissions. Are you just gonna keep patting yourself on the back. Yes. For not doing anything. For not working. Yes. yes. Wow. Yes. No, yes. but I but I think I think my larger point stomping, Jen, is. I did undertake this with an intention of helping pollinators. I will say it is on the socials, like in the community forums at large, like the amount of people who ask on a regular basis, like where can I get sprayed? Who can Mm -hmm. I get to spray my lawn? How do I get rid of my mosquitoes? And and after we had that conversation with the pollinator activists, it's like, I just want to strangle everybody. Yeah. 
Um, Ange, on, on <laughs> yeah, on, I mean the mosquito spraying is huge. It's just like the mosquito spraying is is really intense, and I've seen it. I've seen it uptick so much in the last few years that people are spraying for mosquitoes and. That stuff is, you know, they say that it doesn't impact pollinators, but people who do um, insecticide research are often funded by people who produce insecticides. So I'm a little bit skeptical Mm -hmm. that there isn't a a correlation and impact there for sure. Yeah, I just don't go out after dark. No, that's another way to prevent mosquito bites. Um, Ange, on your website, um, I'm going to quote you here. Um, you say the longer I've worked as an apiary, and help me with this word. I'm sorry. Oh, is it gracious. my help? No, I just wrote it. I don't um, know how to read it. <laughs> all right, I'm a, <laughs> uh, the longer yes, I've worked, apiarist. At, you're right. You're right. I'm never going to be able to say it. The uh, longer I, I it for you. Okay, the longer I've worked as a beekeeper, <laughs> the more nature has taught me about organizational decision making. Um, tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, what? Uh, what what have bees taught you about how human organizations make decisions? Well, we're doing a terrible job. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, no, I jest, but I I think that I think that when you're looking at any natural system, um, mycelium, hives, ants, you know, even something like dandelions and how they they propagate and spread or, or um, um, birds and how they know to migrate and migrate so effectively. Like it's, it, it's, it just is really humbling to realize that um, there is a shared culture and understanding of like what the purpose and the goals are and like how we're going to get those done. And I think that, in human organizations, what I see a lot is um, that we don't really take the time to develop a shared purpose and understanding and, mm. and a culture, like an organizational culture. Mm. And that we suffer for that immensely in our organizations with orgs that are unhappy, you know, that we're unhappy in, or we're just like sort of um, propagating a culture of like mutual suffering. Has anyone ever worked in that office? Mm. Or, oh, God, or? yes. <laughs> yeah. The trauma bonding culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, I was at, I was in all levels of education for um, for like twelve years, and I, it's just it's inherent in the education field. Like we are trauma bonding all the time about how hard our, our job is and how underappreciated we are, and it's just like we aren't take the reason that those kinds of cultures, in my opinion, like um, emerge is because we don't take the time to develop a a culture of consciousness around our workplaces. And so watching, watching um, bees effectively collaborate and communicate and beautifully do it and, and just do it in, in synchronicity um, has given me a lot of inspiration for what is possible for us as humans. Um, And it's reminded me how crucial like uh, constant communication and feedback is for us to be able to um, develop those cultures and keep those cultures growing and evolving over time. Um, And I think that we just expect that to happen. Like we expect to like throw a bunch of people who agree that this is an important idea in a room and like things will just fall together and not that we will um, propagate cultures that are potentially harmful or toxic or, you know, don't take into account our individuality, our humanity. Um, Yeah. 
Mm. And when you when you go into an organization um, and begin doing this work of trying to improve communication and collaboration, is there initially resistance um, from some some elements within the organization? You know, I, I'm assuming somebody typically will reach out to you and say, "Look, we." We might we need help. Can you come in yeah. and help us? And then mm-hmm. not everybody there is initially on board. And like, how do you get how do you get through? How do you how do you convince people that there is light at the end of the tunnel? And your what what your work can help improve the workplace? Yeah. yeah so so my my research style when I was. Um, in grad school and just in general as a person who loves to learn is to um, experience like and ask questions about what other people are experiencing. Um, so I'm really rooted in like experiential understanding of, of what's happening. And so in that vein, I always go into organizations with curiosity and wanting to see the folks that are in the org as the experts in the org, but also as the people who are going to actually shape change in the organization. Cause I'm going to go in tell you what I think should happen. You're going to give me feedback. We're going to come up with a plan for what to do, but then I'm going to go back to my home office and my beehives and you're going to keep being an organizational entity, I hope. So, <laughs> so, so it's important that like, it's not, there is, I think in our, our, society, there's a culture of expertise. And I think that I really like to start out with organizations flipping that on its head and saying, well, you're the expert. So like, tell me what's going on here. And like, what do you see as the challenges or the problems or the complexities of the social web of this, um, of this organization? And where are the gaps between like what you say you want to do and what you're actually doing? And like, what is challenging about that? Um, and what resources do you need to feel successful, et cetera. So I'm really like able to then call from that, um, what, what people's priorities are and make a plan and thus a framework that I like that addresses those priorities. Um, and, my goal is hopefully that that brings everyone in and so so that people can get on the same page. I mean, very often I think I come in, give people my assessment and people aren't on the same page. And then I'm like, okay, well then we have to do this work and that work and this work um, to try to get there. And sometimes that involves me and sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it involves me stepping back and saying, well, you, there is a, a set of things about how you make decisions and like what you want as an organization that y'all need to, to come to a resolution about before bringing in another outsider, because you're not in, you're not Mm -hmm. seeing eye to eye. You know what I mean? And there's, there's only so much somebody can charge you to tell that. Mm -hmm. Like I can only charge you so much to say, here's what's what's wrong. And here's Mm -hmm. what I think you should do. But if you don't, if you can't come to an agreement about that, then it's, you're sort of stuck, which, Mm. which happens, unfortunately. There's so many times where, uh, there's dysfunction and they bring in consulting consulting groups or people mm-hmm. and they go through all the work and then the consultant leaves and then it sits on a shelf. Yeah. <laughs> and then they don't, like, they pay for it, like you say, and then they walk away with a nice, pl- like, plan that they don't bother to execute on. Right. Yeah. That's a tough 
that's a tough complexity. And I really, I work on flipping that on its head when I come in Mm -hmm. and it's like, let's do the work now and figure out what the things are that are going to be integrated into culture and changed and not like write a 45 page report about what we think should happen. Like let's actually spend time together figuring out what the next steps are going to be and who's going to be responsible for them and how you're going to tell if they worked or not, instead of just like, Here's some graphs. Yeah. <laughs> Here graphs. is what we found yeah. after talking. They're pretty. Here's a pie chart. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget yeah. Venn diagrams. I mean, and the other thing that I, yeah. uh, just because I sort of tangentially do some of this, like, and I can see dysfunction in organizations a lot. And um, generally speaking, people already know what their issues are, mm-hmm. but they just don't know how to fix them. <laughs> right. And, and, um, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think that might be because a lot of organizations have these traditional power structures that inhibit conversation and collaboration. Am I right about this? Like the the chain yeah, of the chain of command, yeah, right? That's my that's my drum, my my soapbox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That like with with a traditional, very top down, patriarchal. Um, uh, culture you don't have the room to be limber to like change whose job is what you know who's leading what project based on our skills and mm-hmm. our our capacities um and our passions and what makes us feel good um you just have like this is the boss these are the people that do the things the boss says and then yeah. these are the people that do the things that the boss the people that yeah. the boss talks to says and yeah you know, even in orgs that are are working on that, the structure still remains because it's really prevalent around us. And this is something I find so frustrating about about change making work is that because we don't, it sort of feels like this like chicken and the egg situation where like we don't have good models, so we try to make change, but then we end up in the same power structure because we don't have good models for what sustained change looks like. And, mm-hmm. and again, to go back to our, at the beginning, change is scary. It's destabilizing. Right. It, it slows things down. It makes things cost more. It, oh, yeah. it has a, it's a, there's a learning curve right. for it. Um, right. And, and we've always, we've always done it this way. We've done it this right. way for X amount of years and it's working. Right. Yeah. Or it's not, but we don't want to change it. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to do the work to change it. Yeah, I love asking when people tell me that question, like say, oh, we've always done it this way. I'm like, why? Though? Yeah. Like, like what's, right. who, who said that we right. have to, or like who came up with the very first, we do it this way. Right. Um, yeah. Um, one of the things, um, Ange, you mentioned earlier was the, the, you know, as it relates to bees, and I've seen this um, with people, um, is the importance of feedback, you know, in, mm. in, out there in the business world, um, you know, before I went before I went to work for large university, and even since, um, you know, I've, I've seen the annual review devoid of mm. any ongoing feedback. Mm-hmm. Right, like you sit down with your boss once a year, and then they tell you everything that's wrong with you. Right, and everything you've done incorrectly over the last year, <laughs> like, and yeah. you know, like. Feedback should be should be constant. Well, nothing in a review should be right? a surprise. Yes, that's what that, they say. Exactly. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
The f- annual reviews feel so passive aggressive to me. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been keeping a list of all the things you did wrong, and now I'm going to sit down and read it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's like such a small thing that you could mm-hmm. fix, you know? Um, yeah. It is, is to talk more with both with, um, you know, with the people you work with and those who are in your, um, I don't even like to call it reporting line, but, you know, in your, in your work stream. Yeah. yeah. Your colleagues. Yeah. What are, um, I don't want you to give away any um, secrets of the trade. Um, oh, you know, on your website, you talk about, um, uh, I'm going to call I'm going to characterize this as an action statement for some of mm. your, some of your work, which is um, fostering collaborative consensus building relationships rooted in um, reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious kind of, like what what does that look like? What does that look like in practice? Is that different um, different concepts of how people relate to each other in terms of power within or, in an organization? How work is distributed? Like is that all of yeah. those things? Any of those? Yeah, things? it's it's different concepts for me. So so consensus is is figuring out how we're going to reach group agreements that aren't just decided by the person with the you know um, biggest paycheck and largest resume um, but how are we going to reach agreements that feel in alignment with our, our value set as an organization so most orgs have some kind of value set um, to me to lead work of any kind well, um, I feel that you should be operating from a value set, what you value as an organization, what you think is important, what you're trying to change, what you're trying to um, shape, what you're trying to build, etc. So having a really good understanding of that um, is sort of a first step in being able to develop consensus about how you move forward. Um, And then the other thing that I think is important is like uh, we're, we talked a little about feedback, but but figuring out how to communicate when it's both positive feedback and negative feedback in a way that's consistent without being like nagging or overbearing or like you're always giving your colleagues feedback constantly. Um, so how do you practice like consent in that type of in in interpersonal communication um, while also not like st- stifling or holding all of that stuff for an annual or quarterly review, right? Like how do you stay in conversation and create the structures to do that, whether it's going to be like a particular meeting where we all share that or, um, you know, more casual like walks and one-on-ones and check-ins for smaller organizations, Um, like a weekly check-in where we can honestly talk about what's going on for us in our our personal and professional lives so we can hold space for each other a little bit more eloquently. Um, Things like that that begin to lay the groundwork for a culture where we can figure out how to agree and disagree with each other in a healthy way and then come to decisions um, that that allow the space and shape for all of our voices. I think within this, we all like, because we're most often working in hierarchical organizational structures, we also have to do some work about like power dynamics and what power we hold based on our positionality in society and also our positionality within the organization um, because the intersections of those can be really harmful or they can um, lead to people feeling harm. Mm. often and being subjected to harm often. Mm. Um, so, and, and I think that's, 
that's a commitment, right? And that's that's sometimes where like the rubber hits the road with folks where they're not quite ready to to do that kind of personal work, then bring that personal work into the organizational framework. Um, but that feels really important because you can't make decisions with each other if you um, if you can't hold space for each other and really be able to say, hmm, like, am I taking up too much space in, in our weekly meetings? Or like, am I, as the person with the like ED title, am I holding too much responsibility? Um, am I getting too much airtime, et cetera? And those are hard questions for people mm-hmm. to ask of themselves, right? I think mm-hmm. um, nobody, at least in my ascension up the management ladder, nobody ever talked to me about these things, right? Um, asking those questions of myself, right? A stomping right, jet. Like yeah, go ahead. Soft skills. Yeah. They're, they're considered in like most, or, you know, in, in an organizational framework of, of corporate culture, they're considered soft skills or like yeah. the responsibility of HR to think about those mm-hmm. kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. I but, don't know. Those conversations hitting too close to home for me right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just feel it in my in, the, in the sense that you're looking at me saying you're doing everything right, Sawtooth? What? I'm not talking about our organization. Oh. I'm talking about other organizations <laughs> yeah. that I'm a part of. Yeah. I hear you. Um, Those that shall not be named. Yes, exactly. The ones we're not going <laughs> to yeah. talk about uh, publicly. And one thing you talk about um, on your website, and this this really hit home to me, is about the state of constant production that mm-hmm. many of us um, labor under as as workers. Um, can you tell us and talk to us a little bit about the importance of kind of slowing down and even stopping sometimes? Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's two lessons from honeybees here for me. One, worker bees literally work until they their wings like a become so tattered they can't work anymore oh my god um so there is a lesson there in 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 what not to do um i think that's important to to acknowledge and name because i think that the lessons that i teach from the hive are both positive and negative ones right there's there's things that hives do that are not perfect they're not a we shouldn't hold them on a pedestal in mm-hmm. way. um yeah so so the other one is that in the cycle of a year, honeybees will expand and contract based on the resources that are available to them that they need um, to grow their nests and take care of their young. Um, and actually that expansion and contraction is this very um, fascinating way that some species of honeybees have adapted to being more varroa mite resistant because when they don't have an active brood or young young bee nest, um, they're not propagating as many of these mites. And so some bees will stop laying eggs when there's not a lot of food around and they'll create a break in their nest cycle until the mite counts go down and the food becomes more plentiful and then they'll start laying eggs again. Um, So in that way, there is this adaptive response um, to what's going on in the environment and the mites that are inside of the hive that's causing them um, to contract. And so watching that as someone who's propagating these insects and trying to select for um, stock that's more resilient, I'm realizing, oh, as, and, and also like coming into a place with my own body and brain where I, I can't, 
I'm not 25 anymore and I'm accepting that fully. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm realizing the like need for these moments of expansion and contraction of like big pushes and big rests, you know? And, and so, and and also, you know, to be transparent and out, uh, I'm an anti-capitalist and I always have been since I was a young person. Um, And so I'm, I'm, very suspicious of the messaging that we all receive about how much work we have to be doing and the the culture of busyness and the culture of um, like working ourselves to death for the sake of a larger organization is I think really dangerous um, and is really as especially in the United States really starting to impact our health because we also don't have universal health care so yeah. we work um, to be able to have care for ourselves. Um, yeah, so, so I think that production cycles are an incredibly dangerous thing and that if we don't actively practice disrupting them, um, just like power dynamics, um, within our cultures that they, they seed easily and they take over because they're part of like our, our internal narrative and dialogue and the messaging we're we're giving to each other as well. And I feel like employees who are, um, physically and um, mentally healthier will ultimately be more productive. And like, I don't understand why employers don't see that or get that. Yeah, there's a there was a really wild article I read recently that post COVID um, people are less passionate about their jobs because they've figured out that they can get them done in, in less mm-hmm. time, and so they're not as interested in working. you know, 60 hours a week. Cause they're like, Oh, I could do this in, you know, 35 hours. And then I can spend time with my dog or my children or my plants. Um, And having to commute to those jobs (laughs) that take time away from those same things. Yeah. And, and we're really, the, the balance has been upset. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch how that plays out in the work culture over the next um, couple of years. Yeah, because people are just not tolerating what they were before. And I think that that's, that's an interesting moment. Yeah, I hope so. And, and before, before COVID, I had heard something on NPR. I believe it was about um, some, somebody had done a study and they concluded basically that work um, and investment of identity in work is becoming like a new religion for a lot mm-hmm. of um, American workers and that's just so scary to me, right? Um, and I find myself falling prey to it too, right? Like how mm-hmm. much I invest in my title, how mm-hmm. much I invest in how much panic I have. Stomping Jen knows this around thinking about my job going away and what am I going to do? And it sets off this chain of what catastrophic. Yeah, it sets off this. Str- what do I always tell you? It, it'll be okay. You'll figure yeah, it you'll out. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. But like what I'm saying is, it, I'm conditioned. <laughs> I'm conditioned to right. think that that job is me, yeah. right? That that's who I am, right? And that's scary to me. I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for all of us. Yeah, there it is. Oh, so just sad, sad. Um, um, on a more on a more positive note, you were talking about <laughs> values earlier, Ange, and I was reading your website, and I have to say, you really model um, um, as somebody who um, is working and offering um, a service. You you model what your guiding principles are. 
right? Thank you. And That's one of my teaching styles. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. And, um, you know, the, the, and I really want people to go to Angie's website. It's They Keep Bees. Just Google it. Um, go to their about page and click on principles and you'll see them there. Um, and I, I love that the first one there in bold is I love myself. Mm. Right. Um, I just think that's like such an, an important thing to state. Right. Like, and, um, I love it. And, and I love how, I love how you take time on your website to kind of, um, explain um, how you internalize all of your guiding principles, but also mm. practice them, right? Mm -hmm. Like outwardly, like, you know, you have, you have something on there about setting boundaries and why that's important um, mm. for you. And um, I just, I, I really want people to go look at this as a model for setting values and guiding principles. Cause I think it's one of the best I've ever seen actually. I'm Thank not just you. saying that cause you're our guest. Um, <laughs> Um, so I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to say about. Yeah, uh, I would, I'd yeah, like to talk about that. Yeah, please. Um, you know, when I, so like I, I, I come from a working class background, was raised working class, working poor. Um, and, and within that background, there is a lot of messaging about work culture and work as identity, as, as you were just stating. Um, and what, and, and like just how important it is to work to work yourself to death to be able to ascend in class right that messaging is steeped throughout uh, my upbringing and when i was starting to i always dreamed of like working for myself but was terrified like i didn't i didn't have a nest egg i didn't have a like savings account and have a plan for how that would even come into fruition in the least um but was something that I really, really wanted to do. And a big thing for me in my like life practice is to really try to face my fears and be like, okay, I'm scared of this. I'm noticing I'm scared of this. So I'm going to try to figure out how to tackle that like fear and get engaged with that thing so that I have to start working on it. Um, this is like a weird neurodivergent way of tricking my brain into doing things that I don't want to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so actually beekeeping was one of those things that I was scared of, of bees and I had this weird insect phobia. And so I started beekeeping um, as a way of trying to address that. But when I started thinking about leaving my like full-time job that I had health insurance with that I, like I was able to get you know a bank approved mortgage with and all of those things that felt like some kind of class ascension like I had achieved whatever the hell it was that I was supposed to be achieving mm -hmm. <laughs> um it was terrifying and it was it felt like you know like like cliff diving um and the, the place that I ended up starting was those values that, that I wrote and they've been revised several times since then. But, you know, what, if I was going to run a business, it was mine, I could do whatever the heck I wanted with it. What would be the like base values for that business? And they would have to be the base values that like I have. So I started writing what my literal personal values were um, down on these big like pieces of white 
sticky paper. I forget what those are called. Um, <laughs> giant post-it notes. Uh, and I just kept working and reworking them over the course of like a winter, late, uh, like November, December time. And really thinking about if I took those values and I took the thing that I was passionate about, could I like mash them up and make them into something I could make a living doing? Um, and as I started doing that, I just started being like, oh, you know who I could talk to about this particular value? This person. And you know who I could talk to about this? This person. And just being able to like bring people in with the pretense, like I'm trying to have a conversation about what my values are and what I'm trying to build if I'm building anything. Um, was a really powerful way to connect to community. It was a powerful way to figure out who my like allies and accomplices were going to be. It was a powerful way to really get deep in myself and figure out like what's the personal work that I need to do to be able to get over this like terrifying idea of starting my own business. Um, and it gave me so much personal power to realize like other people were into some of the ideas that I had and wanted to see me succeed. Um, and it, so I, I really credit that exercise of sitting down and writing through what I value, what's important to me, um, and what I'm passionate about for being able to like become a roadmap for starting my businesses. I love that. And what never would have occurred to me, Stomping Jen, is to invite other people into that process. I would sit there alone at a computer trying to figure out what my <laughs> values were, and I would never ask anybody for help. That's how I would approach I this problem. I don't understand that. And, <laughs> it's and, like the most ass-backwards way she, of like thinking about the way to do stomping. And anything. Stomping Jen here is a connector. She, I mean, she will reach out to people, and, yeah. and I will sit there yeah. alone in a dark room and try That's to do true. this on my own. Well... It depends on what yeah, and I I love I love that that was part of your process for helping you kind mm. of, um, uh, you know, crystallize into being your your guiding principles. I love that. That's I'm doing this. I have to. <laughs> um, yeah, tell us you have a book, and I also noticed on your website that. Um, People can enter some information on there to get a copy of the book. It is called Radicalize the Hive. Yeah, it is. Um, I wrote this book in 2019. And actually, I'll send you a link, too, because there's a, there's, a, there's a direct link where you can get access to it mm. now, too. Or you can sign up for my email list, and I'll send you a copy in your inbox. Um, but uh, it's called Radicalize the Hive. And I wrote this, um, I got like a small grant to put this together when I was teaching a beekeeping class um, locally at a university nearby. And um, there just wasn't any literature about like alternative beekeepers, community-centered beekeepers, people who were just like practicing anything besides commercial beekeeping. And I wanted to have more of those stories because I just couldn't imagine that most people taking this class were thinking like, I want to be a commercial pollination beekeeper or I want to be a biologist. They were like, I want to learn about bees. I want to mm -hmm. help bees. I want to play with bees, whatever they were doing, they were looking at it as, as a, an opportunity to connect, right? And the, they wanted to look at beekeeping through the lens of people who were also coming, came up in the last um, decade or so of beekeeping and, and were looking for opportunities to connect with honeybees and pollinators and people. 
Um, so I put, to, I started doing, I wrote, you know, a small grant, got it to do all these interviews to put together in the book, which was amazing. Cause I got to meet so many beekeepers from all over the United States and Canada, um, and Europe and, um, Australia and, um, all like ev- everywhere, just really able to say, Hey, I'm like doing this thing. And I'd love to talk to you about what your beekeeping practice is like. And people's response was just an emphatic yes. Um, And then within that, I started really thinking about, like, this was the same round about around the same time I was doing this values exercise. So I started thinking about like what my voice in the beekeeping industry was. Um, And so in that is this like manifesto of like what I think some of the challenges that we face in the industry are um, and that we are going to continue facing with the climate change. Um, And I started thinking about how that connects to some of our under our cultural under underpinnings in the United States. Um, And I put together this manifesto and then at the end of it sort of thought about the lessons from the hive that we could take um, to start working towards change, whether we're beekeepers or not beekeepers, just thinking about like, how do we, how do we take this information and take a step forward? Um, And those became these like principles that I use often when I'm working with organizations. And I've, I've since, you know, moved to doing more than just these principles because organizations are complicated um, and humans are complicated, but um, it was yeah. really a, a guiding a set for me. And, and yeah, the book is totally free. It's um, it's actually sponsored by the UMass library, which is pretty cool. And it's a, it's an open source book. So what that means is that you can download it. Um, it's got a creative commons, um, like non-commercial use, license, which means that you could use parts of it for teaching other people. You could use parts of it for organizing. You can use parts of it for your own beekeeping practice. Um, I'm just asking you not to like reproduce it, cross my name out, put your name on it and sell it. I know know our listeners would never do such a thing. No, they would not. And if you, if you do, I will, I will come and get you and I will confiscate the digital link, the digital links. Yeah. All right, um, but Ange, we'll put we'll put the um, link in our show notes. So um, mm-hmm. anyone accessing this through our, our podcast through their preferred app can get a hold of sure. that link. Um, all right, um, as we begin to wind down towards our our, our last couple of questions for you, um, um, I wanted to ask sort of um, what are you seeing um, on the horizon for Andrew and um, they keep bees. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, great question. So They Keep Bees is growing um, and it's it's an exciting moment for us. Uh, just this, this year, just a couple of months ago, uh, we found out that we were awarded a big grant. So like I said, we do queen raising and rearing. And um, over the last two years, we've been doing research with a couple of our mentors about the best ways to raise queen bees. Um, and we're publishing, uh, we're about to publish like a free resource about how to raise queen bees. But then we decided to take that a step further. And so we asked the same org that had funded us previously for our research to give us some money to do some teaching. Um, and so over 2022 and 2023, we're actually going to be teaching these um, intensive classes to beekeepers about how to raise queens successfully, basically how to do what we do um, on a small scale. And folks will get to come here, uh, they'll get to learn all of these different strategies, they'll get to take queen bees home. Um, It is for people who have previous beekeeping experience, but there is also gonna be some time and some energy 
dedicated to folks who uh, want to get that beekeeping experience and then take a class. Oh, that's great. Um, so, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, honestly, I think that the, the way that we have cultivated our practice uh, really supports our bees, helps them stay healthy, um, and it helps make our practice more sustainable as beekeepers. And so I really want to be able to pass that on to other people because I think it's great. Um, and because I just think that there is this, this opportunity for us all to become uh, better pollinator experts and supporters um, in doing that work. So really looking forward to that with They Keep Bees. Um, and then my, my work as Andrew Consulting um, will continue, but I am putting a lot of energy and attention to... Um, working with a partner consultant on a project called Mainspring Change Consultants. And uh, we, so I do workplace culture consulting and my partner Kent Alexander does workplace culture consulting, but we are weaving our work together um, and doing workplace culture consulting as a team who is looking at um, building both collaborative and anti-racist uh, workplace cultures. And so I am really looking forward to diving deeper because I, as I said earlier, I, I'm a natural collaborator and I really benefit from many perspectives in a project. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing how my workplace culture work evolves as I continue to work with Kent as a partner and um, how we evolve together into developing stronger workplaces in the region. Mm, that sounds that sounds exciting. Um, it does. Yeah. Good luck. It also sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Important um, work. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I I have some really incredible folks who are you know coming onto my team and helping me yeah. out, and I hope that continues to yeah. to come into yep. fruition. But it's not. I'm not doing this all on my own. <laughs> yeah. I want. I wanted to ask um, about about the classes. Do you have like a f you have a big farm or like a location where you can teach those in a yeah. hands-on oh, way with people? Thank you for asking that. That's sure. great. Um, so yeah, so I have a, I have a farm. It's a little, it's a little spot. It's um, over in Montague, Mass. And we do a few different things here. So if you're new to bees, you're really excited about them. I teach, I do like what we call hive dives or hive explorations where I take people into a hive and introduce them to bees and like explain a little of what we do and get to try a little honeycomb, see what's going on in the hives. Um, and you can actually book those on my website, theykeepbees.com um, slash shop. And uh, we also are this year teaming up with some folks in Shelburne Falls called Fabric of Life. They're a traditional skills school. They teach like weaving and um, broom making and all different kinds of skills um, for rural living and folk skills. Uh, and so we're teaming up with them this year. We're going to be teaching a two-part class in July and August uh, for beginning beekeepers. So that's a great way to plug into us. And then on our farm, we also do this cool thing called hip camp where you can book uh, campsites and you can come stay with us. A lot of folks who stay here often do hive tours and things of that nature. But um, a lot of folks just hang out in the woods and oh. we don't really see them for the whole time that they're here i've seen hip camp um recently in my various feeds 
<laughs> it's because you were doing research. Stomping Jen, let's book <laughs> a... those algorithms. Let's book a... Grim. Let's book a hip camp and go see the bees. I want to do this. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Our children are going away at the end of the summer. We'll do a... We can do a site visit. Sweet. Site visit. Yes. I love a site visit. I have to nice. buy... I don't have any camping equipment, oh, though. Stop. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> and was there anything else you wanted to make sure you um, talked to us about um, before we get to our last two um, fun questions? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think I have anything else coming up. Okay. Awesome. Um, so... Um, I love to ask this question of people. Um, so what do you like to do um, not related to work to kind of either for fun or to reconnect um, mm. with yourself? What, what do you mm-hmm. like to do to just to, to get away from it all? Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big reader. Um, I like to read sci-fi, mostly um, Afrofuturist sci-fi. And I like to read sort of nerdy books about farming. Um, But I'm a really big, like, I like to get lost in novels and, like, read them in four days. That's the kind of reader that I am. (laughs) And then the other thing that I love is um, just really time in nature that is, like, still and not just about productivity. I think... I think especially as like a white person we're taught that like nature is like for running or hiking or yeah. you know like doing a thing and i'm like no it's actually like a beautiful landscape that you can just sit and meditate in and that that feels really important as a contrast to some of the work that i do in the outdoors that's great i just like i, to, I don't like doing activities to that me too Going so out in nature and not actually doing anything. <laughs> no, I like to just sit and look at things. Yeah. I yep. don't like moving around. That's right. Yes. We're lazy. Um, okay. Lazy white people. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's Get something. There, yeah, there's something. I want to dig into that just for a second. There's what? something. Um, well, no, what Ange said and what you said. Like, there's something about this idea that. Um, white people have to conquer nature, right? It's like this colonial, this colonialist, like very ethos. Yeah, and I reject it. I do too. Same. I do too. I I do find it fascinating, though. Like you know, I grew up not in nature. I mean, like I lived in the suburbs of outside of New York City, sort of. Both of your both of your parents are my parents are both from the city, right? Inner city New Yorkers. And like I came to school up here in the Pioneer Valley and I'd be like when they'd come visit me, like I totally fell in love with the area and I would they would come visit me and I'd be like, Look at the mountains. Just look, 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 they're beautiful. And they'd look at me and they're like, We're here to visit you. We don't care about the mountains. I'm like, but the mountains are beautiful. Look at them. We took we made the mistake of taking them to the Peace Pagoda in um, Leverett. Oh, did they like it? They did like it okay i think so all right but what it like keep going with what you were saying um i i felt they were underwhelmed and i was trying to explain to them the majesty of the giant temple like and they just (laughs) they're like we don't care yeah we're just here to see you yes we Um, don't care anyways go enjoy nature people just sit in it and appreciate it please chill out Mm -hmm. all right have a hot slow summer yes 
Um, our last, not, not, our not last a hot, hot girl summer. A not what? A hot slow summer. A lazy slow. <laughs> this is like Unmotivated some, some new like TikTok hip like youngster. Oh, talk. it's Megan the Stallion. Yeah, that's Megan the Stallion. Is that what thing. that is? These references. Oh my god. These references. Such a huge fan. Huge fan. <laughs> these references are flying way above my head. Megan is the is the is like the hottest rapper on like femme rapper on the scene right now so um check her out her work is amazing okay I prom- her outfits and costuming are phenomenal and she started the you know pre pre even covid she started the hot girl summer um mm-hmm. phase but but i guess a lot of jokes have been happening now because everyone is going covid wild but yes the true hot girl summer I, yeah i promise i will check it out you are? Yes. You're the hot girl summer? Yes. Are you shitting really on having your own hot that. girl summer? You really got that in here. That makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It seems appropriate. Uh, All right. Maybe. All right. The last question that Stomping Jen, you keep preventing me from asking. Oh, that's because we could talk about all this other fun stuff for hours. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Yes. All right. Now, um, people interpret this question in all sorts of ways. Sometimes no answer is fine. Um, so... I'm just going to simply ask it. Um, what have you experienced that um, you can't quite explain? So it could be a supernatural thing. It could be um, anything else. I'm really. What have I experienced that I can't quite explain? I feel like the things that I think about when you ask this question are like, I don't understand why people, I can't explain the phenomenon of like hoarding wealth. Like that's where my brain goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't understand the phenomenon of like having so much money that you can't ever touch all of it, but still wanting more of it. That Mm -hmm. feels like a bizarre like space to me. I think, I, I think that I just think like in, in terms of like what a finite amount of money I would need to live would be like, I could come up with a number and be like, yeah, like that, that would be enough. Right. But like we live in an entire culture where people are like, no more. And I'm like, for what? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I'm not, I'm a weird person. Like I don't like to buy things. I don't like to shop for things. I don't like to replace things when they're broken. Like I'm really lean. Um, uh, some might call that cheap, but <laughs> I think minimalist is the term that you want there. Yeah. Thanks. I think, I I think like I'm a minimalist one. too, yeah. stomping Jenny. Yeah, yeah. I don't like shopping. I don't like yeah. buying things. Yeah. I just, yeah, um, the whole experience really misses me. You know, yeah. I'm just yeah. like not into it. And I just posted on Instagram a, a, a pair of 30 year old boots I took to uh, Paul's wow. shoe repair in Amherst. Um, Hell yes. And he fixed them right up. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've got my yes. <laughs> mine are uh, mine are going on six years old. I just had them resold at Mariachi Shoe Repair in Turner's Falls, and oh. uh, they did an amazing job. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping I can take those into another six years because I can't mm-hmm. find the same boots yeah. anywhere, yep. anywhere in the world. So yep. I I'm like I'm gonna just wear this leather until it falls off my feet, I guess. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, and these boots, I don't know how I found them. They, they, they were from, just they, from EMS, the right? Best fitting no. shoes I've ever had. I love them. And now I will have them for longer. Yeah. That's so oh. amazing. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, okay. And I, I have I have to say, um, this was an absolute pleasure. I, I learned so much um, from talking with you about about bees, about people. About Megan the Stallion. About <laughs> hot girl summer. I learned a lot. Um, wow. I'm so glad we covered so many bases in such a short time. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to say thank you um, for um, coming on and spending some time with us. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. Stomping Jen, what do we say to our listeners now? There's stuff we need to say here. Oh, goodness gracious. Yes. People, if you like our episodes... Mm-hmm. Don't keep them all to yourself. No, what we make uh, sure you share them share, right. with a friend. Yep. Mm-hmm. Tell all your peeps about it. Yep. We don't have ads in here. No, we're not. We're we're anti-capitalist yes. podcasters. We're, this we're is minimalist. free. We're yep. minimalist. There'll be no mattress or underwear ads in our podcasts. Oh my Jesus! Right. This yeah. is this is something we're putting out into the world for the common good. Right. So share it. Yeah. Spread the common good. Yeah. Subscribe if you like yep. them. Subscribe. And you never know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Download. Leave us a review, even even yes. if you hate it. I yes. love negative reviews. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I enjoy them. You do love those negative so, reviews. Um and um say hi on social media. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Engage okay. with us. Right. Yeah. And like please we engage with you. Please um check out check out the um they keep bees website yes. okay please um all the stuff on there get a copy of radicalize the hive read that okay and take those well, concepts thanks. and apply them to your life and be um, and be 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 yes and mm-hmm. just be how's yes. that, How, that I'm going to leave it there great way to end. <laughs> okay I like it all right um and I will go on and on with this conclusion so I'm going to end it um what we like to go we like to go around and everybody just says our 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 goodbye catch our goodbye catchphrase which is bye now so uh, could you do us the honor please <laughs> bye now stomping jen bye now listeners i love you bye now This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, All peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 